Well, good evening. Welcome to our live stream of Heavenly Memories. I uh, hope you've had a wonderful Wednesday as we continue to make our way through this COVID-19 uh, sheltering at home. And Wes, we have a, another great evening to talk about heaven. Tonight. We do, we do. And I'm looking forward to what we have in store tonight. Uh, some helpful topics for us to reflect on. Uh, but before we do that, I think it'd be good for us to just kind of look back not every topic, uh, because we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and there's so yeah. much to cover when we're thinking about heaven, when we're thinking yeah. about eternity. But uh, what are some of the things, some of sure. the themes that we've covered thus far? Well, again, the basic premise of my book is uh, that heaven will consist in a revelation of the glory of God. It, will, it consists in part in a revelation of the glory of God, looking backward at redemptive history, at, at God's mighty actions in history, his mighty actions in saving us individually, uh, his actions in providence, uh, in the unfolding of what we would call secular history, but showing that all things had a purpose. Uh, the fact that God will be glorified by, I think, not just telling us what happened, but revealing it to us, showing it to us, even uh, with a vividness and a power. Mm. Uh, we've talked about some subtopics that have been really, really exciting, and honestly, I don't remember them all. <laughs> but the idea is we will develop in heaven knowledge-wise. We will never be omniscient, but we will forever be learning, and the subject matter will be the glory of God, which we've defined as the radiant display of the attributes of God, what God is like. And so history is a beautiful display of the greatness of God. Those are some great topics that we've covered. I think in a conversation you and I had in preparation for tonight, I was just thinking about how little, perhaps mm -hmm. before uh, even these conversations have begun, I thought about heaven. Right. And I think when I thought about heaven, I thought about a lot of the positive aspects. I thought about the glory of God. I thought about being with God, mm -hmm. seeing him face to face, all of mm -hmm. those promises. There are some aspects, though, uh, that you address or hope to address in your book that mm -hmm. I think might be a little harder. And sure. so the two topics that we're going to talk about tonight that I think are very helpful for us to reflect on are the heavenly memory of our sins and our earthly sufferings reviewed and explained. What are some of the things we're going to talk about in line with those two ideas? Sure. So um, this would not be something that we would ordinarily say, you know, why would we even think about this? It'd be actually, I've gotten pushback sometimes yeah. uh, as people say, you know, when we get to heaven, we're really going to look back at, at our lives. Yes, we will look back. Will we remember everything? Um, say yes, everything everything they say mm. and so when they go like that there's clearly some <laughs> things they would rather forget they would rather not go back over and i think more than anything it's our own sins the things that bring us the greatest shame in this world and then also our most painful moments there's some exquisitely painful sufferings that we're brought through in this life we don't want to relive that and god actually does give us somewhat of a therapeutic forgetfulness time heals all wounds kind of thing that as we it's been a number of decades since that happened we're able to 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 go about our lives and be generally happy but whenever we remember that it feels like a, a wound it feels like something still embedded in the skin it's painful so you would think in heaven we're not going to think about any of those things we're not going to think about our sins of course not we're not going to think about our sufferings it'll just be simply Happiness. And by the way, you said, you know, I, I didn't think much about heaven. I didn't either. I actually thought, you know what's going to happen? We're going to die and go to heaven and be happy. And that's about as deep as my thoughts went. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, as I've continued to develop this, now we come this, uh, this evening to two topics that I think need to be addressed. Sure. And I think, you know, that, that initial understanding that we'll die and go to heaven and be happy, I don't mm -hmm. think that's wrong. If there's just a richness yeah. and a, a variegated color to it, a, yeah. a texture to it, that I think it's helpful for us to reflect on some of these themes yeah. in light of, of yep. that truth. Details. Yeah. So these are two distinct topics, but mm -hmm. I think in your book, there's also some connection between sure. these two. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. First of all, they're painful. And so um, we've got to highlight again for probably the 30th time in our evenings together, Revelation 21, 4, sure. which says there will be no more death, mourning, crying or pain. I can't I can't say that enough. Heaven will be a place completely absent of those four things mm -hmm. and, and then any hybrids or derivatives of them. So um, because shame is exquisitely painful, there'll be no shame. And so uh, there's no embarrassment, there's no mental anguish. Some of the greatest pain there is is not physical, but but it's uh, it's emotional and, and mental and, and you know spiritual. Those those things, no pain at all. So when I'm advocating that we will have a comprehensive and detailed memory of our own sins in heaven available, and that we will have that knowledge. It will, however, bring us zero pain, zero regrets, mm. zero shame. Now, I don't think that's true on Judgment Day. We can talk some about a painful Judgment Day, but I'm talking about heaven. Revelation 21.4, from that point on, a new heaven, new earth, everything's new. No death, mourning, crying, or pain. Mm. So they are joined in that they're painful. Secondly, they're joined in that I believe God wisely withholds information from us in this world, especially about our sufferings because we really can't handle it. And so there, there's, there are gonna be aspects of our heavenly learning that we will have grown up into a strength through glorification. We will be buttressed by the glory of God and be able to handle anything he lays on us. Nothing will be difficult for us. We will be excited to learn those things. So that's how these topics I think are united. That's great. And I do think that at Revelation 21, 4 passage is so vital as we have this conversation even tonight. And to that end, also on your screen, you notice the number that we've had. And so as Andy mentioned, there, there are a lot of times questions, particularly around some of these aspects of this topic as we deal with heaven. And so if you have questions, we'd love to have you send those in. Uh, like I've mentioned before, we'll try to get to all of them. Uh, aren't always able to do that. Uh, but as you're listening, as you're thinking about these themes, it's been helpful for me to meditate on for my own walk with the Lord. And I think Andy obviously yeah. said for you as well. Sure. Uh, but we'd be eager to hear from you some of the questions that may come to mind as we go throughout the evening. But as we start uh, kind of along the lines of what you mentioned with people mm -hmm. pushing back sometimes, it seems very clear from many scriptures that God mm -hmm. forgets our sins, casts them into the depth of the ocean, removes mm -hmm. them as far as the east is from the west. So what biblical evidence is there that God will remember our sins in heaven? So there are two aspects of the answer I want to give. First of all, I, we can't say those things enough. The freedom from guilt and from condemnation and the richness of reconciliation can never be overstated. Mm. The delight that God will have um, for each of his redeemed children in heaven will be perfect. He cannot have, he will not have it's, it's impossible to have for him to have a greater love 
than he will have for his redeemed in heaven. He will love us because we are in Christ. He sees us in Christ. So in some mysterious way, through our union with Christ, he will love us like he loves his only begotten son, who was perfect. So the imputed righteousness of Christ is complete and perfect. God sees us in that righteousness. And in that relational sense, it's as though our sins were never committed. And so we've got to emphasize that. There will be no skulking around in heaven, no God looking, I know what you did, and we both know what you did, Mm -hmm. but go ahead and sit down and eat your heavenly food. That's not what it's going to be like. Think about the father of the prodigal son. He doesn't hesitate to embrace his son. He doesn't hesitate to say, bring a ring for his finger and shoes on his feet and put a royal robe on him. He is my son. There's just a, a rich delight there. But I didn't answer your question. What evidence is there? Yes, those verses do teach as far as the East is from the West. They do teach Micah 7, 19, that he's hurled or cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. But here's what we must uphold. We need to uphold the unchanging attributes of God. And there are two in particular that we need to keep in mind. God's omniscience and God's eternality. Let's take the second first. Eternality means God is above and outside of time. Yesterday, today, tomorrow are all the same to him. He knows the difference for us, but he sees them all equally clearly. So what that means is he sees you committing that sin that you committed 16 years ago as though you're doing it right now. That's the nature of his eternality. Secondly, he is omniscient. When he says he forgives our wickedness and remembers our sins no more, clearly stated from Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, and then repeated twice in the book of Hebrews, we must hear that as a relational forgetting. He doesn't absolutely forget, for then he would not be omniscient anymore. So he does remember. He just doesn't, it doesn't create a barrier relationally between us. It doesn't diminish his joy in us or his his delight in us at all. Now, proof of this is the parable, for example, of the 10,000 talents. You remember this uh, king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as a man was brought in, he owed 10,000 talents. This crazy amount, trillions of dollars. And he can't pay it. So the king ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. So he's going to go into prison, basically, Mm -hmm. debtor's prison. The man begs for mercy. The king shows him mercy. But then that man goes out and chokes one of his fellow servants who owes him about a third of a year's wages. Significant sum, but nothing like 10,000 talents. He chokes him and all that. The king hears about it from some other servants, brings the guy back in. This is after the forgiveness of the debt. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours Mm. because you begged me to. Stop right there. Do you think the king remembered how much? Oh, he knew. He knew exactly. And not only that, he's using it as a lever over the guy. Mm. You do know you were forgiven all those sins. Well, if you're going to be forgiven by me, you need to forgive others. Jesus uses that as a lever. So clearly there is an unspoken remembrance of the sins anyway. Hmm. So we've got to harmonize those things. The way I harmonize it is the only reason for God recounting our sins in heaven is so he can tell the story of history. It's not to create create pain or to bring us to repentance or to change us. We'll be done repenting will be glorified and don't can't be improved morally. <laughs> the only reason for bearing up the sin is so that he can tell the story of redemption. Because if you unweave our sins from the tapestry, the tapestry will make no sense at all. So that's really helpful. We think about the eternality of God and the omniscience of God. So mm-hmm. let's say we're having this conversation and we concede, all right, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. God is eternal and omniscient. So obviously 
he can remember our sins. Uh, let's take it to the next step. Will we remember our sins? We will, but we'll remember them as a point of history. And here's the thing. one of the, uh, It's an incomplete answer I just gave. The only reason for God recounting our sin is so he can tell the story. No, the real reason is so that he is glorified and mm -hmm. we rejoice. Yeah. So that we'll be happy in his glory. All right, how does that work? Well, let's take grace, for example. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. All right, when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll still be celebrating God's grace. Mm -hmm. What is God's grace? It's his, his dealing with us in our sin. Yeah. It always has to do with our sin. And it's amazing because of how holy he is and how sinful we were. So the reason we will remember our sins in heaven in part is so that we can celebrate with ever-increasing dimensions the magnitude of the grace God showed, not just to us, mm -hmm. but to our brothers and sisters from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We will have a sense of the immensity of the sin. The, the mightiness and the, and the numerous aspect of the sin, but also how lavish the grace. And so that's what I, it's not a shame thing or a pain thing. It's just so that we can celebrate God's amazing mm -hmm. grace. The key verse on this, Ephesians 2, 7, in order that in the coming ages, he might show, reveal the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness was in Christ Jesus. That's pretty solid evidence that there will be some recounting of the sinfulness of the redeemed in heaven so that they, can delight in the grace of God shown to them. And so that helps us understand why, some of the reasons behind why God would uh, maybe go back over or mm -hmm. we, we and God would remember our sins so that we can tell that story, that God mm -hmm. would be glorified and that we would rejoice at sure. the grace that he's shown us. You mentioned a painful judgment day a moment mm -hmm. ago. I wonder yeah. if we can circle back to that and maybe talk about that theme for just a moment. Okay. Um, judgment Day, I believe, will be a painful day. It's not easy for me to fully understand when it happens, how it happens. Mm -hmm. I do picture one Judgment Day because there is the, the, the sheep and the goats teaching, which is not a parable. This is really a simile or metaphor or whatever. But that when Jesus returns, uh, he will gather all the nations before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So it's not a parable. It's just that's a similarity. Mm -hmm. So they're separated. You've got the sheep, the redeemed on one side, and then the goats, the reprobate on the other. And he deals with them all at once. So I picture Judgment Day that way. Now, beyond that, we really can't picture it because the amount of detail mm -hmm. that we would have to go through is just almost incomprehensible and we got a lot of people to process. Sure. So you think about like taking a number at the deli. I mean, we're going to be there a while. So I don't I can't figure out how it happens but I do know there's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 which says that we will ha have to give an account to Christ on the day of judgment for everything done in the body whether good or bad. Now the or bad part means a sense of pain. Also 1 Corinthians 3 says that God will take all of our works and put put them to the torch. And there will be gold, silver, costly stones that the fire will purify and perfect for heaven. Those are our rewardable deeds. But then there's the wood, hay, and straw. And if anything is burned up, Paul says, that individual will suffer loss. Hmm. Now, that can't be pleasant. That's got to be painful. So the suffering of loss of your life, of some of your life, of maybe even a great part of your life, time that was wasted, time that was, you know, the opportunities that were not, that were not redeemed. You didn't use the time well. And it's just going to get burned up. In some sense, there's a grace of God there where God's not going to talk about it, you know, and, and rub your face in it. But he is going to honor you 
for your gold, silver, and costly stones. That's amazing selective memory on God's yeah. part, though he remembers everything and will tell the story. He honors us with crowns and other accolades for our good works. Mm. But the wood, hay, and straw, there is a sense of loss on the day of judgment. So I picture a difficult judgment day in which the Lord will go through the file and say, stop right there. Tell me about that. Why did you do that? And it's just, you know, it's like Peter after the rooster crowed and Jesus looked right at him in the eye. It's just painful to have to look Jesus in the face and say, I really have no explanation. And to, and to have to, you know, like Job said, were he to, to bring us up on charges, we couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. There's just nothing we can say. So that's got to be painful. But I believe at the end of that painful judgment day, when he's gone through everything we've done in the body, whether good or bad, he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and then there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. That's what the verse says. So I think there's some struggle. But judgment day isn't only negative either, because that's also the first time you get to see Jesus' delight in your good works. So it's a very mixed bag, just like our life here on earth is a mixed bag. Absolutely. By the way, one last thing. Paul said, because there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, because there is a judgment day, Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Mm. Vertically, horizontally, I try not to sin because I don't want to have to give Jesus an account for it. I don't want to have to answer for it. You know, so I will try not to sin. So that actually lines up with my theology of a challenging judgment day. It's also helpful for us just in our sanctification to be yeah. thinking ever about that day when yeah. we'll stand before him and give an account for those things. Right. That's good. You mentioned Ephesians 2.7 a moment ago. Mm -hmm. And so why is it impossible to celebrate God's grace in Christ mm -hmm. and tell the story of history mm -hmm. without remembering past sins? All right. So if we were to be up there bright shining as the sun 10,000 years singing Amazing Grace and we don't have any memory of our sins, what what is grace? Sure. It doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. There's no use of the word grace toward the holy angels they never sinned they didn't need a redeemer they didn't need an atoning sacrifice so we must be able to understand the backstory jesus's wounds uh he was a lamb looking as if it had been slain why was he slain because of our sins and so we have a sense of that but i do not believe it will cause us any pain john piper actually in this book life as a vapor argues that there will be a kind of a sweet regret or almost a heavenly lamentation. And he's aware of Revelation 21 4. Hmm. I can't quite, I love John Piper. I can't go, quite go with him there. I think there is memory, but no pain. John MacArthur, for his part, almost seems to argue that there's no memory. Wow. We're not even going to think about it, won't be, won't be aware of it. I think we will celebrate God's grace when we see how kind he was to sinners like us. It will just be a sweet delight. Now, let's, let's talk also about some aspect of rewards. I thought about this. Let's take, for example, uh, a sweet Christian married couple. Been married for 60 years, 50, 60 years, all right? They're sweet, or at least she's sweet. He's a Christian, but cantankerous, and got more cantankerous as he got older. Mm. Furthermore, maybe he had Parkinson's or something mm. like that and was bedridden the last 10 years of his life and was very difficult to deal with. So a good part of this godly woman's reward will be caring for her fractious, cantankerous, irritable, Christian husband. Hmm. How can we tell her story without telling his story? We can't. So her rewards are tied up in the sinfulness of another Christian. Hmm. So it is in marriage, so it is in relationships, so it is in mission work or in church work. It's all woven together. Yeah. 
And so you, you just can't tell the story without bringing up the sins of the redeemed. Now I'll say one other thing. We're not worried about the sins of Hitler being told in heaven. Tell them. Right. Uh, we're not worried about the sins of, of this, of Joseph Stalin or some other persecutor. Mm -hmm. Tell them. We're actually, to be honest, not too worried about David's sins being told in heaven. Tell them. Huh, interesting. You're not ashamed of David's sins being... Then what, Wes, would we not want told? Our sin. <laughs> okay. This guy. It, yeah, this guy. Right here. <laughs> so here's the point. In heaven, we will be sweetly liberated from that loyalty to self. Mm. It's going to be all about Christ. Like, tell the story. Yeah. Tell the story. We will be so free from fear in this. First John 4, 18, there's no fear in love. Mm. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We're done with all that. We will be just, Lord, tell the story. Tell yeah. the story. Yeah. I think Romans 7 yeah. might be helpful for us yeah. to talk about for just a moment at this point. How, how does Paul's statement about indwelling sin in Romans yeah. 7, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me, sure. help us to understand our complete freedom from shame, kind of along the lines of what you're just talking about. Okay, so Romans 6 makes it very, very plain that at conversion, when we are born again, we are united with Christ. We are made one with him. We were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, mystically one with Christ. At that moment, we live with Christ and died to our old self. The old man, the old person we were in Adam, died forever. Now, we still have a sin nature, but there's been a decisive break made between us and the man or woman, the person we were, in Adam. Mm -hmm. We're not that person anymore. Now we are in Christ. Well, Paul then continues that on into Romans 7, talking about the battle we have with indwelling sin. And he says, you know, concerning indwelling sin, the very thing I hate, I do. The thing I want to do, I do not do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, and if I don't do what I do want, not, do, uh, want to do, he says, it is no longer I who do it. Mm. But it is sin living in me that does it. He says, actually says that twice. What does he mean by no longer? He's saying, now that I'm born again, now that I'm a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Everything has become new. At that moment, you are not a sinner, absolutely, in one sense. You are positionally pure and perfect. Now, in sanctification, you try to become practically so, but you've got this body of sin, body of death that you're struggling mm -hmm. with. At glorification, we're done with that. So in heaven, the, the decisive break made between us and sin is consummated and perfected. Mm -hmm. So Paul, even in the, in the mortal body, said, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Paul doesn't deny that when he was irritable with somebody back then or said something or did something wrong, that he had to fess up, he had to deal with it, he had to, you know, he's not denying that. But he's saying, in my Christian nature, I, I hate sin, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to heaven, that will be perfected. It will be like we're talking about another person. Mm -hmm. Tell the story. Yeah. That is who I was, but it is not who I am. So I have no fear in the matter. Whatever story you want to tell, tell it. I'm free from fear in this matter, because I am now pure. Also, keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your sting. The sting of, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So think of a, of a scorpion, that stinger has been removed. It cannot yeah. hurt you. Mm. It's done. It cannot hurt you. Neither can sin or guilt or shame or any of that bring any pain at all. Just tell the story. Whatever, Lord, whatever aspect of the story you need to tell, to tell 
the story of how this person came to Christ or this happened in this church or this mission work, tell it. I have no fear of the matter. Yeah. And I think even now we get some foretastes of that, right? Certain mm -hmm. things that we, there are moments where we sin, we confess that, mm -hmm. there's reconciliation maybe that takes place, and we can even look at that and say, oh wow, look what the Lord did. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think there's aspects too where even if we've confessed that, mm -hmm. even if we've repented of those sins, mm -hmm. there's still an element of shame. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as you talk about heaven, and mm -hmm. as you reflect on these things, you mentioned a theme that's kind of come to your mind mm -hmm. uh, recently, I think, mm -hmm. in this idea that there will be no scarlet letters on our white robes in heaven. What does wow. what does that mean? No scarlet letters on our robes, white robes in heaven. Um, that comes, of course, from Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, 19th century novel, mm -hmm. written around the time of the middle of the 19th century, in time of, a little before the Civil War. Looking back a couple hundred years at uh, Puritan New England, Puritan Massachusetts, and a very disparaging, again, consistent negative picture of the Puritans mm -hmm. and the judgmentalism and the legalism and all that kind of thing. So in the story, it's a novel, in the story, uh, Hester Prynne uh, is found to be pregnant with child by adultery. Her husband mm -hmm. is, I think, back in England. There's no way that they could have been together, but now she's pregnant, so must have committed adultery. It's no other way. And um, in the story, then, she is made to wear a scarlet A on the bodice of her dress. As she, uh, as she does, she also is made to stand up on a platform in front of the whole community. Mm -hmm. And she is holding her little baby daughter, and Hawthorne actually writes, she's wrestling in within herself about whether to cover one emblem of her shame with the other emblem of her shame, namely her baby. And so there's just, it's just all about shame. And that's very, very painful. So the idea is the scarlet letter is you're presenting what you did. Yeah. So the idea of no scarlet letters on our white robes, the second part of it is what are the right white robes? And just look up the phrase white robe in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned four times, I believe, multiple times, that the saints in heaven are given white robes. They're given, they, they've washed and made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. I think the word white implies purity from sin, such as Isaiah 118, where it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Total purity from the stain of sin, mm. completely washed in the blood of the Lord. But here's the interesting thing. Why then do we need robes? Clothing was invented when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit and their eyes were open, they realized they were naked. And from that point on, we needed clothing. So amazingly in heaven, we will be wearing robes. So all of our shame is completely covered and we present to each other in heaven as radiant and pure. So when we see Paul in heaven, it's like, hey, there's Paul, the blasphemer and the persecutor and the violent man. Come on over here, Paul. Tell us about your career of violence. That's not how it's going to be in heaven. Mm -hmm. You can see Paul saying, you know, I, I, I did that, but I actually wrote Romans also and planted some churches. So let's, why don't we talk about that? Yeah. There's, there's no need. We will present as radiant. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We're not wearing the emblems of our shame out in front. We will present radiantly to each other and we will see each other's glory and delight in it. And it will be attractive and beautiful. 
But the record of who we were and what we did in redemptive history has to be told so that God's story can be told mm -hmm. and we can understand the grace of God and celebrate it. So there's no scarlet letters on our white robes in heaven. Wow. Incredibly helpful as we reflect on why or how, in what way our sin will be remembered and how we can think about that uh, even now as yeah. we seek to live holy lives. Yeah. Reading. We need to make a distinction between now and then. We need to remember our sins now with pain. Uh, mm -hmm. That's Isn't that true? Yeah. You know, when we get disciplined for sin, mm -hmm. discipline is by definition painful. Yeah. No discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace. So in this world, we actually have to have the sting of shame, the sting of pain. We have to go through that. Why? Because we are still in danger. Yeah. We're still assaulted by the devil and the world and our flesh, our indwelling sin nature is still there. We're still in danger. So we need to remember past disciplines from the Lord. We need to be uh, be mindful of that so that we won't sin. All I'm saying is in heaven, it's a whole different <laughs> world and we won't need any of that. No pain at all. Mm. So, so far we've talked primarily about our sin. Um, the second thing that we talked about though is, is something that I think can be perhaps even more challenging right. as we think about remembering in light of that promise that there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain. And that's our sufferings. Yeah. So concerning our sufferings, mm. what is the central question that suffering people of God will yearn to know the answer to in heaven about our earthly sufferings? It's always the same. It's one word. Why? Mm. Why? Why did you mm. do it, Lord? I don't understand. I think about Adoniram Judson after he lost his beloved partner in ministry, his wife, uh, Nancy. Um, she was an incredible co-laborer with him and every bit as courageous as uh, he was, as he was imprisoned um, basically as a British operative and spy during the war that Burma was having with Britain. And, and he was being hung upside down by his feet every night uh, with shackles and being just tormented by mosquitoes. Every single day, his wife went and interceded for him to the government. Every day. And she was mocked and ridiculed, but she went every day. She's just an amazing person. And he loved her and cherished her and all that. They had a little daughter, Maria, who was very sickly. She had a fever. She was fragile. They were worried at any time that she would breathe her last. He uh, went away on business. He went away on behalf of the British government to translate for them to negotiate the final peace at the end of that war. And it seemed the Lord wanted him to go do that. But while he was away, he received an envelope with a black seal. And uh, he knew right away uh, that it meant death. But he was shocked when he opened it up to find that it wasn't his little daughter that had died. It was his wife. Mm. It was almost like he couldn't believe the words he was reading. Mrs. Judson is no more. And it started him on a two-year journey of pain. Uh, and then four months later, Maria died too. So he lost them both. And um, his ministry up to that point had produced very little fruit, only suffering. I've only brought damage, only brought destruction, mm. you know. And so he went out in a short distance out into the jungle and dug a grave. Not He wasn't suicidal, mm. um, but he was deeply despondent. And he just stared into the grave and was pondering reality and existence and God. And he wrote to a friend, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him but I cannot find him. So behind all that is that one word question. Why? I don't understand you. I don't understand what you do. And so everyone that's ever gone through agony in this world always wants an explanation. 
Um, also, we see it many, many times in the scriptures. For example, Psalm 22, one of the most famous mm-hmm. lament psalms there is. Mm-hmm. Jesus quoted it from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David wrote it a thousand years before that. And he said, my, David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groaning, so far from the words of my cry? Then he said, I cry out to you day and night, but get no answer. So God gives no answer, no explanation. Think about Job. Job lost 10 children in one day. It's hard to even believe, hard to even understand. 10 children, one day, all at once. Later, though, in the book of Job, he said, I cry out to you and you remain silent. Again, the same thing. The question is why. I want to know the reason. Why did you take my my little girl from me? Or why did you take my wife from me? Or why did you afflict me with this sorrow, this suffering? You think about Joni Erickson, who snapped her her neck, broke her neck, and was uh, rendered a quadriplegic as a teenager, dove into the Chesapeake Bay, spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Um, she, She can give a better answer why now. But she will give a much better answer in heaven. So we'll get to all that. But mm-hmm. we always want to know why. And then the, the compounding issue is God doesn't give any explanation. So in the book of Job, when God finally does speak to Job out of a whirlwind, does he explain the suffering? Mm-hmm. Any of it. He doesn't spend any time on it. Mm-hmm. He just basically says, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I made the ostrich? Where were you when I made the Leviathan? <laughs> And, and it's like, how is this therapeutic? But God knew it would be therapeutic. Mm-hmm. When you see the immense majesty, the greatness of God, your problems shrink into insignificance. Mm-hmm. But God never gave Job an explanation, never talked about Satan coming and saying, does Job fear God for nothing? You know, we as the readers of the book know more than Job did at that time. But do you think we as the readers of the book know more than Job knows now? I think not. I think Job knows more now about his sufferings than anyone can possibly imagine. So I believe in heaven, we'll go back over our sufferings, again, like our sins, as part of the necessary story, Hmm. but also so that God's wisdom can be revealed and also, also, God's sustaining grace. Uh, Another example of this is... um, um, is Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot was the widow of Jim Elliot, who with four other missionaries was killed by the Huarani Indians in uh, Ecuador, in the jungle of Ecuador, to, in the 1950s, 1955, I think it was, bringing, ultimately, uh, she and the other widows uh, and some others brought them to Christ. Hmm. She had a radio program for a couple of decades based up there in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, and she always ended with this this scriptural phrase and underneath are the everlasting arms so that's scriptural and it it reminds us of the invisible sustaining Mm. nurturing grace of god through the trial somewhat like the footprints poem which you know people are walking through and then there's only one set of footprints i'm not supporting the theology of it (laughs) and the feel of it but some people really love it but it's the same idea the invisible sustaining grace of god elizabeth elliott knew about that Mm -hmm. so when we get to heaven there i believe will be not even a partial but a full detailed multifaceted explanation of our sufferings from Mm god Andy, I think you've also said that you get some insight from J.I. Packer and, and William Cooper on Heavenly Review of Human Suffering. Sure. And uh, I have here 
prepared, okay. printed out. Uh, some of the words from something that uh, Cooper, William, William Cooper, Cooper yeah. wrote, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Absolutely. And I'd love to read this yeah. for us and then have you share kind of what yeah, some of sure. those insights are. So uh, these are William Cooper's words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Wow, that last stanza says so much. First of all, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform, and then he talks about storms and clouds. He's talking about what we would call, or what the Puritans would call, uh, adverse providences. Mm -hmm. Providence is the doctrine that God rules over every detail of our lives. There are no accidents, and so there is pain and suffering. Um, and we are afraid of it. We don't want to go through it. It's the, it's the greatest thing we fear is, is immense pain that happens in this life, sufferings. But God is wise and loving and brings these things in. And he, he uses, William Cooper, who wrote this, mm. uses the, the idea of a big storm cloud as about to pour the blessing of rain mm. without which we die. And so it's a picture of the blessings of God. But the final stanza is the best. And that's it's useful for my book on the Heavenly Review. Mm -hmm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his, his work in vain. So stop there. Either he's talking about an unbeliever mm -hmm. who's blind or that we can act blind when through unbelief we scan his work scan his as God's, we look over carefully what God has done. Mm. And if we do it with eyes of unbelief, it's like we're blind and we cannot see what's going on. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to scan God's work in vain. Then the beautiful last two words that's useful for my purpose. God is his own interpreter. Mm. And, what's the last line? He will make it plain. So, my my question there is not why, but when? When will he make it plain? Sure. Not in this life, he won't. Mm. So that leaves a lot of work to be done in the next world. And so what that means is God will interpret his actions to us in heaven and tell us what he was doing. Now, I don't think it's going to be just one thing. I In the chapter I wrote, I have actually 16 scriptural reasons why God puts his people through suffering. Yeah sanctification, display of the gospel, progress of the gospel, blood of martyrs is seed for the church. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, mm -hmm. but if it dies, it brings forth fruit. Um, we are comforted and then give comfort to others with the same comfort we have received. So it, it expands the scope of ministry. It puts the, the light of the gospel on the display of suffering so we can give reasons for the hope that we have. There's like 16 reasons, there's probably more than that. So I don't think it's any just one thing. Imagine a little six-year-old girl drowns or dies in a car accident and a neighbor lady comes to faith in Christ at the funeral. It's not going to be super encouraging to the grieving couple mm -hmm. because they were like, God, wasn't there another way for the neighbor lady to get saved? You know, maybe we just have, them over, have her over to tea. <laughs> but it's not that simple. And so I think there's multiple layers of human suffering. 
But I do believe in a full interpretation or explanation mm -hmm. of these things by God in heaven. Yeah. We have a great question that came, uh, came in here. And it's one that, you know, I think uh, Annie and I have asked in our own life at points. Mm -hmm. And I think many people have. But will we remember things we prayed for, sometimes for years, mm -hmm. that weren't answered in the way we were asking? So mm -hmm. the example is maybe the salvation of someone. Will we understand why those prayers weren't answered? Absolutely. What an incredible question. A sub part of that chapter is um, personal matters. Mm. So there'll be stuff that's not earth shaking, not big stuff, but it's just these mysteries. And so you mentioned unanswered prayer. Mm. Why didn't you answer my prayer the way I asked it? And then here's, here's my overall premise. God is reasonable. He's rational. He has a reason for everything. Can you imagine getting to heaven and asking either on the, the single greatest agony that you ever had in your life or a smaller detail and asking God why he did it and for him to say, I don't know. I have, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, it bothers me as much as it bothers you. I didn't know what I was doing that day. That is not the God of the Bible. No. He is intensely reasonable. Hmm. He's intensely rational. And so there is a reason for everything, but that's a great question. Unanswered prayer. Let me explain to you why the answer to you was wait or no mm. and why this was better. But yeah. I did hear your prayer yeah. and I answered it in this way. Mm. Yeah, incredibly helpful question and mm. encouraging to think that even if not in this life, we'll, we'll have those answers. Right. Can I say one more thing? Sure. <clears throat> and we do need to get to the biblical support for my uh -huh. assertion. But the one thing I want to say is, <clears throat> well, God is intensely, deeply, completely rational for everything he does. Sin is not. It's intensely irrational and insane. And we may talk about this, God willing, next week. Next week will be our last week in this live stream talking about heavenly memories. But we may talk about, you know, our memory of evil as such in the next world. We'll talk about some of that. But part of it is to teach us the contrast God the reasonable, God the rational, God for whom everything makes sense. But he's not only a thinking machine, he's also deeply compassionate, deeply heart. He's all mind and all heart, mm. perfectly un unified. But there are some whys in the Bible that go the other way. Like the why that God spoke through Nathan to David after he committed adultery of Bathsheba. Why did you do it, David? And there is no answer. There wasn't an answer then, and there won't be an answer in heaven. Mm. Sin's insane. So the contrast will be so clear. The irrationality, the insanity of evil, mm. and the rationality of providence. It will be beautiful. It will be actually delightful to see how reasonable God's plans were. Yeah. It's just amazing. As, as you talk about these things, as we have these conversations, my mind is just racing to a hundred other questions I want to ask. But <laughs> you mentioned the scriptural support. So let's okay. talk about that again. Okay trying to root everything sure. that we're talking about in the Word of God, sure. scriptural support for these assertions. How do I know that God will explain everything in heaven? Well, I don't know that for certain. I don't see any direct verse that teaches that. But I want to show you just in scripture how much of God's mind and heart he wants to open up and share with his children. Mm -hmm. Isn't it true that Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Mm -hmm. That we would know God, to know his mind, his heart, his reasons. Mm -hmm. Other examples, all right? Um, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And amazingly, Moses, writing 500 years later, the book of Genesis, reveals in Genesis 19 an internal deliberation in the mind of God where God talks to himself and works something through in himself like this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? For he will be a great man and he will lead his family to follow the ways of God after him so that the purpose of God may be established. So God is actually asking himself a rhetorical question. Shall I hide this massive thing I'm about to do from Abraham? I can't. I'm going to show it to him. That's self-disclosure. But a lot of it's in John's gospel. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends because everything I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. That's disclosure. That's self-disclosure. Or again, John 14 and verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. I'll disclose myself. Mm -hmm. It's self-disclosure. It's explanation. It's reasonableness. So all I'm saying is God gives us lots of explanations and lots of reasons why in the Bible. We get that in John 11. There's a clear reason why Jesus waited until Lazarus died. Mm -hmm. So that the Son of Man might be glorified. The sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory. There's a reason, an explanation given. That is the reason why I think there'll be lots of explanations in heaven. Not fewer explanations, more explanations. God doesn't hide anything from his kids. Another verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things revealed, the, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. All right, so there's a category of things hidden that are secret and things that are revealed. Yeah, but the secrets are for now. In heaven, there's no need to keep secrets anymore. What are the secrets for? Everything's been fulfilled. Mm. The redemptive plan is done. It's like the, the OSS files being unlocked after 60 years uh, or the Enigma machine, the story of how the Enigma was cracked and all that. We don't need to keep it secret anymore. It's done. Yeah. They probably kept it secret for 20 years after World War II. There's still issues going on. Mm. But when we get way beyond it, there's no need to keep the secrets. He's not hiding anything from the children. He'll explain everything. There's so many things that come to my mind, you know, with the one question that was submitted around specific, you know, prayer requests. Are, right. what, what are some of the most painful provinces that mm -hmm. have begged for God's explanation? So I have a list. Of, uh, it's, just a, it's just a sampling. Yeah. Um, clearly the death of loved ones, mm -hmm. uh, especially the death of children. I have an account there of Martin Luther barely able to. He, his little daughter died, and he said, I, I can't even talk about it. It's just so painful for me. So those are extremely painful. Um, so um, natural disasters, uh, hurricanes. Think about Hurricane Katrina. There was lots of theological discussions. Mm -hmm. Did God send Katrina as a judgment against the wicked city of New Orleans? Of course he didn't. God would never do things like that. And it goes back and forth. It's like, we're all guessing. In heaven, we'll find out what God was intending by not just that hurricane, but every earthquake and hurricane and, and different aspects. We don't really know. Sometimes it's not inconceivable that it is a judgment from God, but within the judgment, he protects some of his people. Sometimes it's just mysterious where you get one street wiped out by a tornado and the next street is totally spared. 
And, and on the one street, there is a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. And on the other street, there's a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. That we can't follow God's providences. It says in Romans 11, his paths are beyond tracing out. His, his mind is deep. We don't fully understand. And so there are great mysteries. Uh, we also have, for example, the sparing of tyrants so they can do more, more hideous deeds. Like in 1944, the assassination attempt on Hitler it was a bomb, a briefcase bomb that went off. And the leg, the oaken leg of the table blocked the blast from Hitler. He, his ears were blown out, but they healed and he survived. Three men died, but he went on to live and, and, and basically 10 more months of World War II. And that included the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was singled out about two weeks before Hitler committed suicide, singled out and executed. And also Corey Ten Boom's sister died later in 1944, about six months after the blast that would have killed Hitler. She would have been spared. So why does God keep the one alive for longer and then the others die? It's a mystery. There are painful provinces. There's also uh, issues like, um, for example, the death of a very gifted people, very young. David Brainerd died at 29. Robert Murray McChain died at 29. Um, Lady Jane Grey at 16. Perpetua was 20, I think. William Borden of Yale turned his back on the, on the Borden fortune, went as a missionary, stopped off in Alexandria, Egypt, before he ever got to China to minister Muslims in China, died of spinal meningitis. Never made it to the mission field. Everybody's saying, what a waste. Hmm. It wasn't a waste. God know, knew what he was doing, but there's, there's some questions. Yeah. You know, why did you choose to take this individual out uh, so young? Oh, there's many other such providences that come along the way. Just anything that would cause you to say, I don't get it. I don't understand why God did that mm -hmm. in that particular way. So we have these two realities, suffering, which oftentimes, well, all the time is God's providence, but oftentimes is painful providence for us yeah. to experience. And then sin, which we talked about just a moment ago, being completely insane. Right. Um, both of them remembered both of them ultimately for the glory of God. Any final thoughts on these two yeah. themes and and how we can think well about them even now? Really, all it makes me just want to say is how amazing is grace. Mm. That God in his infinite wisdom and love and kindness and grace has woven out this tapestry with light and dark threads. Mm. And when we look at it all, it's going to be breathtaking to see the majesty of God in this this amazing plan, it is going to be so satisfying. When we get the explanations and we see the wisdom of God, not just in our own lives, because we'll care about the suffering of people that we, that we never even knew, who lived hundreds of years before us, we'll be wrapped up in their stories and see the wisdom of God. When we see all of that, we are going to be so satisfied. Think of the satisfaction of a connoisseur of something who sees the most beautiful connoisseur of painting sees the most beautiful portrait he's ever seen. Mm -hmm. The connoisseur of music learns the backstory of how Bach wrote, um, you know, a cantata or something like that. The connoisseur of this or that, just the the mental satisfaction of the artistry. We're going to have that in heaven. We're going to be so satisfied with the providence of God in heaven. Mm, what a day that will be! Awesome, Andy. Would you pray for us as yep. we close our time this evening? Lord, thank you for the time we've had tonight to celebrate you. I believe that you send the Holy Spirit as a deposit, uh, a down payment, guaranteeing our full inheritance. And the full inheritance is heavenly joy in the presence of God. The down payment are moments, foretastes of what that's going to be like. And that's what tonight was a little bit as we studied theology, looked at scripture and meditated on heaven. 
Lord, I pray for any that were listening tonight that you would uh, expand their estimation of the greatness of heaven. Mm-hmm. And that if any are listening that are not yet Christians, that they would trust in Christ so that they can go to heaven and be there and enjoy it. Thank you for the time we've had tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.